I want to start with a question this morning. What do you think, this is not a rhetorical question, what do you think should be the core beliefs of a Christian? If you had to sit down and say, this, this is at the heart of what a Christian needs to believe, what would you say? The, the cross. Yeah, the resurrection. Jesus is risen. Salvation. Salvation how? Okay, forgiveness. Okay, our only hope. Free. Yeah, we've got to see the outcome of that. Anything else? Core beliefs? Love. Love, okay. Scriptures. Scriptures. The Trinity, okay. Perfect justice. Perfect justice, good, okay. Um, think about the challenge of the church as a new century dawned. A century where there are no living apostles. The last one, John, dies at the end of that first century. What do we believe? What, what, are, what are going to be the core beliefs that have been passed on from the apostles and bequeathed to the church? What does it mean to be Christian? I meet regularly with my good friends Spencer Brand and Randy Newman, and we read books. And then we get together and we discuss them. Right now we're reading a book by Michael Kruger. Uh, it's titled Christianity at the Crossroads, How the Second Century Shaped the Future of the Church. Kruger explains a doctrinal unity that was expressed in what became known as the rule of faith. And in his book he writes this, The church did not create the rule of faith, but viewed it as something that derived from the apostles themselves. The church merely preserved it and passed it along. The rule of faith was also viewed as something that expressed the fundamental message of the Old Testament and how that message pointed to the redemptive work of Christ. In sum, the rule of faith was viewed as a summary of Scripture's own storyline. A little later he writes, The fixed nature of the rule does not mean, of course, that there is no room for the church to develop its theological understanding or to make progress in its doctrinal articulations. The church made great strides, particularly in the second and third centuries, in regards to how they understood and how they expressed certain truths. The rule of faith did not stifle such progress, but rather made it possible. The rule provided the necessary theological boundaries and the proper narrative framework within which such development, theological development could take place. You got handed something when you came in today. We're going to come back to that later, but you'll notice on it is the Apostles' Creed. And today we're going to begin a series of messages on the Creed. Now, every year as we plan, my service planning team and I think through what we want to do, every year we want something related to doctrine, reminders of these great truths that we believe. And, and so we decided that we would use the Apostles' Creed. Some of you may say, that sounds familiar. You know what? I did it 12 years ago. Nancy thought it was only about five years ago. So some of you may feel that way if it's current. But we're kind of updating it and freshening it and taking a new look. Plus, I'm guessing that, um, well, just by a show of hands out of curiosity, how many were not here 12 years ago? Oh, this is a good, this is a good thing. It's a good thing. 
How many of you grew up in a church tradition where you recited the Apostles' Creed every week? I did. A lot of us did. Okay, without a show of hands, how many of you could recite it accurately today? Again, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you with children think they could recite the Apostles' Creed or some other similar creed? You know, what I want to do today is basically give you an introduction to creeds, and especially the Apostles' Creed. First of all, what is a creed? The word creed comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe. So a creed simply states what one believes. Now, creeds predate Christianity. Uh, ancient Israel had a creed. These words were central to Israel's worship and are central to Judaism today from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This is known as the Shema. Uh, almost every synagogue congregation today says the Shema in every worship service. Uh, it's a creed. It's a statement of belief. Now, some New Testament scholars believe that there are certain passages in the New Testament that are essentially creedal in form. Uh, that is, they were formulated statements of belief that the apostles shared in the early church. I'll give you one example. This comes from the pen of Paul in his first letter to Timothy, where he says this, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Has a real creed feel to it, doesn't it? You can see them reciting this in the early church in a worship service. So the creeds became brief summary statements, if you will, of doctrinal positions that are explained in Scripture. The most well-known of the creeds are probably the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed dates to 325 AD. It came out of a council meeting called the Council of Nicaea. It was a gathering of church leaders to deal with a raging heresy of that day called Arianism. Essentially, the Arians denied the deity of Jesus, that he wasn't fully God. Now, the Apostles' Creed is the oldest of the creeds and forms the foundation for all of the others that follow from it. The form in which we will, you know, most people recite it today, the way I grew up, uh, isn't its earliest form. But it was created basically in the beginning for the use in baptismal services. So a candidate for baptism would be asked to affirm their belief, and they would say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and they would quote the creed. So it became a way of, of giving a testimony, if you will, a statement of belief. Now we know that the Apostles' Creed was in place by the middle of the second century, probably as early as 140 AD. It was considered the old Roman form. Uh, it's the simplest, it's the least developed of all the creeds. The traditional form that most churches use today that have the creed dates to the 4th century with some few clauses that were added as late as the 7th century. Um, some churches today use a more contemporary form, but the one that we're going to use, the one that we're going to study together uh, is the one that probably most of us grew up memorizing and reciting in church. 
One other note before I move on. Some of you might be familiar with what are called confessions. Uh, the Protestant Reformation of the 16th and 17th century built upon those earlier creeds and churches produced confessions to explain their basic beliefs, the understanding of what they thought the Bible taught. So the Lutherans, for example, wrote the Augsburg Confession. Anglicans uh, drew up the, the 29 or the 39 articles. The Presbyterians, they produced the Westminster Confession of Faith. Some of you have come out of those church backgrounds, denomination backgrounds, and you recognize that. These confessions are different from creeds. They're longer, uh, and in general, uh, they're more detailed, and they relate specifically to that denomination or branch of the church. Again, a creed is simply a statement of what one believes. So we start with this, then what purpose does the Apostles' Creed serve? You know, why might it be important to the church and, and even to people today? I'm going to suggest three purposes of the creeds. First is that the Apostles' Creed helps us define our faith. The Apostles' Creed defined the core beliefs of the church. It stated what it was that the church believed about God. Um, as I said earlier, the first use of the creed was at a baptism service where the candidate would affirm their faith by stating the creed. But if someone were to ask you today, what do you believe about God? Would you be able to answer that in a concise, memorable way? Would you have a correct statement of your core beliefs about God the Father, and about God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? The Apostle Peter, writing in the first century, spoke about the readiness to explain the basis of faith. Look what he wrote in 1 Peter 3. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, some have thought that this means to be ready to give a legal defense with apologetics and with arguments on why you believe the basis of your faith. But to be honest, that's an overstatement of that Greek word. The word simply means an explanation. What do you believe? This is what I believe. That's the way we're to answer that question. That's what Peter has in mind. So we have to ask, how would the average Christian sitting in church respond today? What would they say? What's their, what's their level of understanding? What's their knowledge level that they could answer that question, what do you believe? What about children? What are they learning? Some time ago, um, the Chevy Chase Presbyterian Church newsletter listed things that children said during confirmation. I wonder how far off they would be. Here are some of them. Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. <laughs> the fifth commandment is humor thy father and mother. When Mary heard she was to be the mother of Jesus, she went off and sang the Magna Carta. Another name for marriage is holy acrimony. Christians have only one wife. That is called monotony. <laughs> The patron saint of travelers is St. Francis of Sisek. <laughs> See? The first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. 
It's sometimes, listen up, Stan, wherever you are, it's sometimes difficult to hear in church because the agnostics are so terrible. What do you believe? Can you state your core beliefs in some systematic manner that's easily remembered? That's the purpose of the creed. The second thing I want to say is that the Apostles' Creed helps us to defend the faith. The various church counselors out of which came the creeds were convened to deal with heresies that were coming into the church. I already mentioned Arianism uh, that needed to be challenged in the fourth century. What the early church leaders are having to face with in the second century, with its beginnings even back to the first century, was something called Gnosticism. And we'll be looking at various aspects of this heresy as we go through the creed, because you'll see why they said certain things. In a nutshell, Gnosticism denied that Jesus was God in the flesh. It was a form of dualism that, that said that all things that are material or physical are evil, spirit is good. Spirit is good, material, evil. And, and the result of that, of course, is means it's impossible for God to have anything to do then with the material world. So you see that basically at his core, it's a denial of the incarnation. That Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. The Apostle John wrote in defense of the incarnation in his first letter toward the ends of the first century. So just think of, think of this perspective of Gnosticism and what he writes. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So you can see how he, even in what he's writing now, is wanting to attack the beginnings of Gnosticism. And we, like those in the early centuries, live in a time where false doctrines abound. Whether they be Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Unitarians or whatever, they hold views that are contrary to the teaching of Scripture and to the core beliefs that the church has maintained through all these centuries. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Hold on to the standard of sound teaching which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So he's calling us to an alertness, to a carefulness of handling the truth. And so with the Apostles' Creed or a similar creed, we stand in defense of the great teachings of the Bible that have stood the test of time. There's a third purpose of a creed like the Apostles' Creed, and that is that the creed helps us to declare the faith. Creeds declare to the world what the church believes. They provide, if you will, a distilled essence of the gospel. Uh, how can you recite the Apostles' Creed in reference to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection without recalling the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 when he wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. There is the essence of the Gospel in creedal form. The Apostles' Creed gives us a connectedness 
to the historic, traditional, orthodox view of faith. It's a declaration of faith. Professor Roger Olson wrote an article in Christianity Today titled The Tradition Temptation. In it, he says, we are like people who've forgotten our family tree and our cultural past. Rootless wanders without landmarks from our past to guide us. Is it any wonder then that so much of our preaching and teaching is shallow and that we keep repeating the errors of the past? New forms of the heresies that bedeviled the churches in the generations immediately after the apostles' deaths repeatedly appear in evangelical circles. Too many evangelicals accommodate to the therapeutic mindset of the culture and reduce proclamation to self-help tips. Christianity becomes compatible with too much and loses its cognitive shape. Evangelicalism is in danger of being reduced to a folk religion with little or nothing to say to the world out of its great intellectual heritage. The creeds help us define what is Christian. What should a Christian believe? You know, we're in such great need today of clarity as to the content of one's faith. Let me illustrate. Jack Canfield co-creator of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series was quoted some time ago in the Dallas Morning News, and here's what he said. I'd say I'm a Christian, but I'm probably not your dyed-in-the-wool Southern Baptist Christian. On any given week, you might see me going to an Episcopal church or a Unity church or staying home and meditating, doing yoga. I've chanted with Hindus. I've been to Jewish retreats. I find myself comfortable in almost every religion because I think the essence of it all is there is a God, and I believe God is a loving God. I suspect that Jack Canfield would not subscribe to the Apostles' Creed. It would be too narrow. It would be too restrictive. It would be, it would be too dogmatic probably for him. But folks, we've got to be aware of, of, of the mushy thinking today going on in the church. Um, and what's in our, our world around us. Let me just illustrate. In a 2018 Pew Research Center study, 80% of all Christian surveys said they believed in God, but only 56% say the God they believe in is the one described in the Bible. Now, we might be quick to dismiss that as a general survey among general populations. So l- let's talk about those who identify themselves as evangelical. Last fall, Ligonier Ministries released a study where evangelicals were asked their views on a series of theological statements. Here was one of them. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 51% of those evangelicals who responded agreed with that statement. 78% of those evangelicals agreed with this statement Most people are basically good by nature, and Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. 78%. The leader of the second largest congregation in the Presbyterian Church USA explained her belief in a podcast with the Chicago Sun-Times after she was asked the question, is Christianity the only way to heaven? Here was her answer, no. For me, the Christian tradition is the way to understand God and my relationship with the world and other humans, and it's the way for me to move into that relationship. But I'm not about to say what God can and cannot do in other ways and with other spiritual experiences. 
According to the Presbyterian Panel Survey 2012 to 2014, now listen, 45%, 45% of PCUSA pastors strongly disagree or disagree with this statement, only followers of Jesus Christ can be saved. 45% of pastors disagree with that. So the question still is, Christian what do you believe? It really matters what you believe. Well, I want to close this morning with some thoughts about some limitations, because there are some limitations to creeds. Uh, we have to remember that creeds and confessions are produced by the church over the centuries, but they're not inspired additions to Scripture. Uh, they're not meant to be a replacement for the words of Christ or the apostles or the prophets that preceded them. Uh, these are human documents that should be understood as carefully worded responses to various heresies that rose up and challenged historic Christian doctrines. Uh, let me just share some thoughts from one writer. Creeds are statements of faith that are true and authoritative insofar as they accurately reflect what Scripture teaches. They have found, been found useful either by the entire church or by important segments and or denominations over the ages. They are thus helpful measuring sticks for orthodoxy. Now, does that mean that since they're man-made, we should throw them out? That we should ignore them and only look at Scripture? Well, if you follow that line of reasoning, then you, you, you need to dump all sermons and Bible study materials and commentaries and the thinking of people from before us. But listen, the creeds don't claim to be Scripture, to be inspired, to be the authoritative words of God. In fact, many of the creeds themselves declare that the scripture is the only infallible uh, words that we are to abide by, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. So isn't it valuable for us as Christians in the 21st century to benefit from the, the, the thoughts and the, and the meditations of learned men and women throughout the centuries? We can benefit from that. So while we never elevate a creed or a confession to the position of Scripture, we also don't carelessly disregard what God has taught to other people out of his word that we can benefit from. So there's really a balance. I suppose that's what I'm suggesting to us. We need to have a balance between those. Roger Olson in that Christianity article says, in matters of theological development and debate, tradition should get a vote but never a veto whereas scripture is the gold standard by which every idea, including those developed within tradition, must be tested. Evangelical traditionalists need to acknowledge more readily than is their tendency that the Holy Spirit is still at work among the faithful people of God, leading them to deeper insights into God's word that may sometimes correct ancient, medieval, and even Reformation beliefs and practices. At the core of the Reformation was one of the statements, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, scripture above all, or we might say scripture first. And that should be our motto here at Knollwood and anywhere where you call it the church. And so as we look at the Apostles' Creed, we'll be diving into the scriptures that lay the foundation that are the basis upon those statements that we see in the Creed. Now, Take out your piece of paper that you were handed when you came in. If you didn't get one today, when you came in, we'll just raise your hand and we'll, we'll get one to you. Anybody didn't get one? Okay, we've got a few around here that didn't get one. Let's get you one. 
Uh, what I want to suggest that you do this during our, our series, just stick this in your Bible or something that you bring on Sundays. We'll have extra copies, but um, I want you to see the creed. I still need some up here, Clint. I want, I want us to read the creed. And again, we're going we're to be going through this for a number of weeks together. Um, this will be familiar to some of you. Some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, Noah's gone off the rails. Let's read the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Pretty succinct, isn't it? Now, some of you I lost back there with the word Catholic. It's small c. The word Catholic means uh, I don't want universal. Universal, worldwide. It's the universal church. And we'll explain these things as we go through the creed. What I did on the back, though, is I've thought about the creed. This is not from those who wrote the creed or that have used the creed. But it's just a framework that I see that I can put this into for my seeing, you know, the creed. There's the reign of God from eternity past. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, his son. There's the reign of God in history. He's our Lord, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and shall come to judge the quick and the dead. All how God is reigning in history. And then the reign of God in the church. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And then there's going to be the reign of God in eternity future. There's forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Um, you may like that, not like that, agree with it, disagree. That's just the way that I break out the creed and see how that fits together. So this is our roadmap. This is where we're going to be going for a number of weeks together. And um, yes, I'm probably going to ask you to memorize it. Are we going to start saying the creed every Sunday we're together? No. But, you know, it's something you can go back through your mind and you can say, here's the core of what I believe. And it's just a great way of, of putting your hands around the historic, orthodox, traditional teaching of Scripture as it relates to the church. Okay? You with me on that? Good. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for how you have worked in the lives of, of men and women over the centuries to clearly define the core beliefs of faith. And we thank you for those at the risk of their own lives and at the cost of their own lives, many of them in the second century, who stood firm for the truth of the apostles' teaching and who then, to deal with heresies in the church, put these words down on paper that we might have a record of those core beliefs. Lord, would you just challenge us during these messages with what we believe? And if we need to wrestle with it, Lord, may we do so with intellectual honesty, with, a, with an open heart of asking that you would teach us what your truth is. And so we thank you 
for the Apostles' Creed, for the way that it will lead us into your scriptures and to see the foundation, the truths that you've laid there for us. And so we thank you for that. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, we're going to celebrate communion. We, we, we very purposefully put it today at the end of the message because in one sense what we are doing was we take communion is we're making a statement of belief. We're, we're, we're making a proclamation, as Paul said, that we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. And so as we partake of, of the bread and the cup, we're making a statement that this is the heart of our belief, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so we declare the truth about the gospel and what it is that we believe. And so those who are going to serve us, come, would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. And thank you for the grace that comes because of Christ's sacrifice for us. We thank you that you, uh, in your sovereign will, uh, before you even created the worlds, knowing that, that uh, people would be sinful, that they would fall, Lord, that you chose to come here to this earth, to live in, in perfect uh, form as, as God and man, without sin, and that you went to the cross and you died for us. We're so grateful for this sacrifice. And as we think of the, the, uh, the, the bread, the broken body of Christ, broken for us, as we think of his shed blood, without the shedding of blood, the writer of Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we thank you for the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies in Christ as he went to the cross for us and his blood was shed. That if we would believe in you and in the work that Jesus did on the cross, you would forgive our sins. You would restore us to a relationship with yourself. God, that you would declare that we are your children and that for eternity we will live with you. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.